Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Groundbuster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Are you looking for the best suspension technology for your sport ATV? Look no further than Elka Suspension, the industry leader in sport ATV suspension technology. With championship wins in prestigious events such as the Dakar Rally, Score, Best in the Desert, ATV MX, Cross Country, and Works, Elka Suspension has established itself as the go-to choice for athletes and enthusiasts alike. But they don't just stop at ATVs. They're constantly expanding into new markets, including UTVs, trucks, SUVs, pit bikes, snowmobiles, and more. Their commitment to innovation and quality means they're always looking to improve and adapt so you can enjoy a smooth ride wherever you go. Want to learn more about what Elka Suspension can do for you? Visit their website at elkasuspension.com or give them a call at 450-655-4855. They will always be happy to answer your questions and help you find the perfect suspension solution for your needs. Welcome to DBR Racing Products the leader in 3D modeling and innovations. Since 2015, they have been revolutionizing the industry, starting with their groundbreaking YFZ450R battery boxes. But they didn't stop there. They have continued to push the boundaries, constantly improving their design with each new version. In 2018, they introduced the game-changing Vortex EXO cage specifically designed to securely hold the Vortex ECU in a safe and sturdy location. This breakthrough innovation ensures your ECU stays protected even in the toughest racing conditions. At DBR, they understand that every detail matters. That's why they also offer an array of essential products to enhance your racing experience. Their spark plug hold downs keep your engine firing at peak performance while their LTR breather boxes ensure optimal ventilation for your machine. Their LT250 engine skid plates are a must have for those seeking unmatched protection. Engineered to shield your engine from impacts and rough terrain, they provide the ultimate defense for your ATV. But that's not all, they've developed ProPeg mounts that allow you to use TRX450R Nerf bars, giving you greater control and maneuverability on the track. To explore their full range of innovative products and learn more about DBR Racing, visit their website at www.dbratv.com. You can also reach them directly at 507-828-1233. Their knowledgeable team is ready to assist you with any questions or inquiries. DBR Racing Products, where innovation meets performance, unleash the power within you. Alex Ortiz, welcome to ATV Talk. How are you, man? Doing good, Leonard. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for asking. So I want to get this portion out of the way before we really get in depth to talk about who Alex Ortiz is. Uh, you had a little mishap uh, at the last works race or yeah, was it the last works race or did we miss it? The last works race. Um, how's all that developing and how are you? Uh, it's uh, it's going all right. Um, there's the infamous triple that everyone was crashing on at Cedar. Um, and I happened to crash on the tiny double after it. 
Um, I was out there just to practice and have fun and, and spend some time with the racing family. And it was kind of my first lap of actually hitting all the jumps. And I just went over that one without anyone ahead of me. So I just way overshot it and took a tumble and broke my collarbone. Um, this last weekend was six weeks, I believe. Um, I had my second follow-up today and I can take it out of the sling now and, and start using it for light duty is what they're calling it. So. So like most young men your age or uh, my age that don't listen, you're back to doing everything you normally would do or, or, or are you listening? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to listen a little bit. Um, I don't do as much at work. Um, and then I just haven't been on the bike. I haven't been on the bikes at all. We're trying to get them fixed up a little bit right now. I'm in the middle of building a new bike and, and getting my old works bike kind of back up to shape. So not a lot of riding or anything too crazy right now. Well, that's good. Listen to your doctors. You're young and you have a long career ahead of you if you choose so that you should uh, make sure that you don't do anything to, to shorten it or slow it down. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the big thing is, you know, I got to, now I'm in the position where I have to pay bills and I don't just race to race, but I actually have to pay to race. So uh, trying to get healthy again so I can work is kind of important now. Correct. I understand that. We, I understand that brother more than you could imagine. Um, just to, to get, on the right page with everyone when they find out who you are. Um, Alex Ortiz has been around the World Off-Road Championship Series for a long, long time. You raced at a very young age. Let's go back in time. How did you guys find the work series? Um, it's actually really interesting. Um, I moved out to a, a small town with my family um, when I was going into first grade. And it just so happened that um, the animal Josh Fredericks was our next door neighbor. And it doesn't take long after that when you have dad who's interested in off-road and had rode three wheelers and dirt bikes and banshees and stuff growing up. And so having someone like Josh right next door and endless, endless miles of roads and, and dirt roads and washes to ride where we lived, it it didn't take but a year. And we were we had a bike and I think we were at our first works race. What what year was that? Just just to let everybody understand. I was turning 10, so I believe that was 2009. Wow. 2008 or 2009. So it's a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. 15 years now. So and and you you got a bike, you went out to works and you started racing works. Yeah, we ended up um Again, Josh being on the uh, the Can-Am team at the time, I think he actually just got started with the Can-Am team when we got into it. Um, we picked up the DS90X, which at the time looked like the coolest bike around. It looked like it had the best suspension. It would be the fastest. Um, and I went out and raced Mesquite and raced for last place. Um, it was just a, just a four-stroke trail bike that they put some fancy parts on from the factory that made it look really cool. And it was a lot of fun for me at, at that age to, to go rip, or at least think I was ripping. Um, but you know, when you, when you put it next to the apex and the DRRs that were out at the time, it was the four stroke motor just didn't hold a flame to the two strokes at the time. Right. Those, some of those apexes and uh, DRRs were pretty high tech for a small young quad uh, for yeah. a youth rider like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, it was definitely eye-opening, um, kind of interesting. I, I remember we went, my dad picked me up from school and we went for Friday practice and I was just bummed out. I was so bummed because everyone was blowing past me and everything. And, you know, it was my first race. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. It was first time even being on a track around other kids on other bikes even. So I, I didn't know what to expect. And so just having everyone blow past me was, was kind of disheartening. But again, I didn't know. I didn't know anything of it. And I'd only trail ridden basically with my family before. Um, but, you know, come that Saturday morning when we went out and we actually did the youth race, none of that mattered. None of it ever mattered. It was just actually being out there and having fun and doing it with other people. So it, 
it's it's interesting to see to kind of reflect on that i think it's kind of funny yeah and and you developed from there because i know that i had spoken with you on raptor 250 that's at one point in your career and um we were at uh gosh the uh the washington utah yeah uh cedar yep cedar no it wasn't cedar it was the uh by the lake oh san hollow yeah san hollow i mean that yep. was for some reason i couldn't think of san hollow but i knew it was washington yeah it's super close uh yeah that i remember talking to you and your dad there and uh we did we had ran across each other multiple times before then but I don't know why I remember that conversation so well, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, I mean, those races, I, I'm actually really kind of bummed that they don't do, it, do them anymore because they were so wildly different from any other works race or probably really any other race that we kind of get on the West Coast at all. Just because of the rock and, and full dune mixture is just something completely different than everywhere else. Um, they threw a lot of people on the ground that weren't used to riding in the uh, soft sand with yeah. rocks underneath. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did bite a lot of people for sure. You know, one of the one of the Fuller boys got injured pretty bad there. Um, I don't exactly even know how he got cut the back of his throat somehow uh, through one of the jumps. I, I remember this. I remember a portion of the story. I just don't remember the whole thing, but it was pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the Razorbacks were definitely getting people there. The witch's eyes. I know that those were all a problem. Um, I think I only rode the big track once. Um, it was the first year when it was like the 16 mile loop. I think um, I was running. It was either three or four races a weekend. And only one of ours was with um, other adult classes. And so I only got to do the big loop i think one of those races and it was it seemed endless i think we only the raptors only did two maybe three laps that for that hour race <laughs> well yeah dude you're taking them out there I, I can't believe you guys didn't have to stop for gas every lap yeah it was it was pretty crazy and i mean the track was so wide because there was so much environment that they used too and it was just kind of follow the pins you'd kind of stay somewhat close to them to to actually follow the track but there was no outside pin kind of it was just like one center pin that you would follow so there was there was lines everywhere and i remember um we ended up way out in the back and kind of dropped in this huge bowl and i just remember like five or six quads like in five or six completely different areas just trying to make the track it was it was a lot of fun hey, memories the things that you get to do and the things that you get to see that uh, <clears throat> most people don't ever think of, you know, like riding in, de in the desert where you grew up. Yeah. I mean, think of all the things that you've gotten to see out in that desert that most people will never get to see. Yeah. I mean, on those days when you get bored of pounding laps and you uh, kind of just pick a trail and ride off towards the hills, you end up out there a ways and, come across some different things that you don't know how long you've been there or when the last person came across and actually saw it. And you almost think, why would anybody be out here anyways? Yeah, exactly. Nothing in, in sight for miles. And here's some sort of old structure or lean to that was built. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what would cause somebody to go hang out in the desert? Because even in the wintertime, it's hot. Yeah, it's it's not great. I mean, it's not terribly hot, but I mean, it's it's viciously cold at night in the desert for sure in the winters. So you get the you get the complete opposite. Right, right. And I've been out there for both. You know, whether we were desert racing or or testing or whatever, and it's 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 crazy to see the difference in the change. And sometimes it can be hot in the daytime and cold at night. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, the race that comes to mind is. Um, the Silver State 300 or even some years of Vegas Torino was a pretty chilly start, but then you're Silver State, you're upper 80s, 90s by the end of the race and Vegas Torino, you're blasting across the desert at a, and it's 120 degrees out. 
and you get there in Reno at night when 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 the when it was a different speed or the courses were different you'd get there at night and you'd need a jacket yeah yep i remember i remember racing vegas to reno on a motorcycle and midday ride i'm shedding clothes my night ride i'm wearing a jacket yeah yeah, and unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to to complete the whole course myself, but I, I've chased the race a few times, and it's it's so drastic because you get up into Tonopah and stuff, and if you get up there early enough, they're so high in elevation that it's even chilly there. And then some of the other mountain towns that you get to as you get closer to Reno, they're they're up there pretty far in elevation, so the weather is just all over the place. And you know, I've been blessed to race it on a quad, race it on a, a motorcycle chase it multiple times uh for for many different teams and i would have to say that vegas torino is probably the most iconic race that you could race in america uh, next to some of your cross-country stuff back east that's that's really um amazing you know they talk about snowshoe and black water things like that um and then yeah. you match it to rendezvous in france dude those are like I've got to race two of the greatest races ever. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, when you start thinking about the undertaking, not just actually being there and racing, but like all of the puzzle pieces that come together to make that one event. I mean, I remember when my dad was racing the Vegas Torino. I mean, it was as soon as the Silver State was done, they were planning and prepping and getting the bike ready, getting trace trucks ready, getting people in order, hotels, rooms, um, everything down to waters in the, in the cooler and sandwiches made the night before. So we had food while we were chasing it. It's, there's so much involved with it besides actually just racing. That makes, oh. that makes events so iconic. And, and you can't do it by yourself. Not you, at all. It, it's a huge team effort. And um with the effort that the people behind the scenes that nobody ever talks about the people that actually get you something to eat or get you something to drink you know because you're so focused on monitoring times or checking mile markers or whatever it is that your job is at, in between pit stops um, yeah it's uh, a phenomenal it's a phenomenal thing and you really the hats off go to the people behind it that keep us all functioning Oh, of course. I mean, my mom and dad, I, I am the uh, Silver State 300 on a Raptor 250. And I want to say like pit six, seven. Um, my skid plate on my swing arm was coming off. And so they kind of pulled me off the bike, tipped the bike up on its side and were working on it. And I kind of remember just zoning out watching them just kind of like waiting. I mean, you're racing. So you're, you're trying to go, you're trying to go, you're trying to go. And my mom just kind of like grabbed my arm and made sure I had a water in my hand, made sure I ate a couple bites of food because we're 250 miles into the race or so, or so at that point. And I'm 13, 14 years old doing it on a Raptor 250. I'm, I'm, I needed her in that instance to go, you need to do this and not focus on that for a second. And, and like you're saying, it's hats off to them for not only getting us to the finish, but making sure we're okay along the way. Yeah. There's so much of that is forgotten. You know, it, it, it brings up this point. So where you are in your career now versus all that racing that you did when your dad was in charge of it and took care of it, how much different do you look at him now based on the way you did then? You know, I was, I was very fortunate with my parents. Um, they made sure we were apart of how everything went together so what i mean by that is they made sure they didn't hide the sacrifice they didn't hide the work that they put in so when i got to this stage and, and it was my turn to put in the work and earn the money and, and and work on the bike and everything it i knew what i had to do because they had shown me but i definitely do appreciate all the work that they did for the, the years that they did it too. I mean, 
I raced from when I was 10 to when I was 17 and they, they hammered it out seven years straight, you know, and it's the amount that they sacrificed for, for me to be able to race for that long is it's untouchable. The development in the machines, the cost, the, the time spent and, and your dad uh, was the fire captain when he retired. Yeah. Yeah. He was a captain for um, Clark County fire. Yes. That's, that's a, a job that ha- it takes its own time with the schooling that he had to go through and, and the things that he had to do through, even through all that. Um, yeah. So he's a busy guy. Yeah. I mean, he worked at the busiest station in the nation for many of those years that we were racing. And I mean, 30 calls a day and most being at night, you know, so sleepless nights come home and he would work on the bike while I was at school or he would load the trailer um, after a sleepless night. And then as soon as I got home from work, he was driving to the race and I can't thank them enough for how much they did for me to be able to do this. Yeah. Just, it, it, it just changes the perspective a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes that we were just talking about with the team effort, you know, and the family effort and, you see that in the in motocross you see it in works you see it in in the cross country where the the moms and dads are you know putting forth so much effort to get their children to the starting line yeah yeah and you know it's it's the effort they put in that made me who i am today it would they led by such a great example that i'm able to do what i do today still too no I really enjoy talking with your dad. He's a, he's a lot of fun. And, and it, the conversation's not just about ATVs. He's got such a broad knowledge of so many different things that we can talk about nothing related to ATVs or everything related to ATVs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he being in the fire department, he gets a little taste of everything for sure. And so it makes it really easy to, to talk to him about a little bit of everything. Right on. Really, really not run out of things to talk about. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, he'll call me up on the phone and I'll trick and see that. And, and if, if I can, I answer every time because, you know, I know it's going to be a good conversation. Yeah, yeah, I I really do appreciate my dad, my parents. He's a good dude. Well, they're both good. I don't talk to your mom, obviously, but a, but a very few brief times, but, uh, you know, mostly your dad. But yeah. <clears throat> that brings me to you were racing when you were 17, you were developing into the pro-am, you had made a name for yourself. Um, talk a little bit about that right before you took a break. Kind of vanished, huh? Um, yeah, it was actually a lot of fun stepping up into that pro-am level. Um, we did two years, one on the Honda, and then the second year we ended up picking up um, a couple of Josh's bikes, and we really gave the Can-Ams a, a a good go um you know it it was it's hard to gauge everything like when you're first coming up especially off the 250s to the 450s it's such a huge difference um we had pretty solid success on the 250s and you know we were looking to kind of continue that going into the 450s but we we had no idea again um so I think my first race was my first race on the 450 in the pro-am class was at Taft. And I don't remember how I did an open a, um, but I know in pro-am I ended up third behind, uh, I believe it was Sloan and David Flores and, you know, to come out and we had a good amount of time on the four fifties. Um, but again, no real track time. And to come out and, and land on the box in Pro-Am for our first race was was pretty eye-opening. Um, you know, it, it meant that we had potential, but still a lot of work to do. Um, and yeah, that, that season was a lot of fun learning. A um, bunch of good battles with uh, Mike and David and Matt Hancock. Um, one of my favorite ones was Ridgecrest. Me and Mike were, we were on rails, man. We were, I was on his rear tires the whole way um and just chasing each other for the first half of the race and then I made a mistake in the pits and just lost a bunch of time um but that was that was a lot of fun and then the next year we brought the Can-Ams in um it just so happened to work out that 
Josh had two bikes that he was kind of sort of looking to get rid of. And we were looking for something a little different and also to kind of support him still. And it worked out with um, Doug Roll and Elka. And we were able to get some Walsh arms and we had a sweet setup going. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it was a new bike and a new program and just little things kept biting us. Um, some kind of off the wall things where even Josh is like, I rode those bikes for 10 years and I never had that problem. I kind of a one in a million chances that it ended up happening, but I mean, that's part of racing too. So lots of learning and developing uh, those two years. And then um, I had the idea of going to school. And so I got serious about that and we backed off of racing. Um, but yeah, those, those first two years in Pro-Am were a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work, um, even on the Honda, just getting used to it and then switching to Can-Ams and getting used to those and trying to develop them into competitive machines. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole, that's two different spectrums there for the Honda to, to the, well, Raptor 250 to a Honda 450R. Oh my God. And then you went from a Honda 450R to a Can-Am, which is a, another world that is totally different. Yeah. Um, it was cool. It was, it was a lot of fun. You know, we had great battles on both bikes. We had great races on both bikes and we had some upsets on both. Um, but I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, I struggled with the Can-Ams, but I, I loved them. I truly loved that bike. I think it was so much fun to ride. It was so fun to, to learn how to ride it. You, you couldn't ride it like a Honda. It was, it was too long and too light. Um, I found myself just learning a whole new style of riding on that thing. And it was a lot of fun to do that. Um, so yeah, hmm. it was good. Now I want to talk about something that's, that's near and dear to your heart and, you know, take your time explaining it and talking about it. 603 is your number and there's a special meaning behind it. And it goes deeper than than I think anybody else, even myself, uh, may not understand it. So if you'd explain it, I would appreciate that. Yeah. Um, 603 was one of Josh's originals, original numbers. Um, and when he got in his accident, got paralyzed, um, you know, he was my neighbor, obviously someone I look up to a lot. So it was pretty hard um, then, and it still is, to have this idol that you hear go ride every day. Every day, like clockwork, doesn't matter if it's summer or winter, two, three in the afternoon, hottest, worst part of the day. He was always going. Um, to hear that every day, to not actually even seeing him for a while because of rehab and everything. It was a really big struggle. Um, but once he got out and everything, he did. Um, a couple of the foundation rides and um, Buddy Williams and myself, who were pretty close with Josh, um, asked if we could run his number to kind of carry on the legacy and just support, honestly, a legend in the sport. Um, I mean, we never trained together or anything, but his attitude, his persona, just his riding style was always something worth looking up to. And so I think part of, part of using, running his number still is just kind of that. It, um, bring that, that persona and that just never quit attitude and just a down to earth, good dude that who wouldn't want to look up to him. And, yeah. uh, and carry his his legacy through racing still. I mean, he's still around and he's still he's still a legend. And it's cool to see him out now. He's actually been jumping on the renegade and going out in the desert with the kid, his kids building some mountain bike tracks. So that's super cool to see. But it just gives me um a little more motivation to be better and uh to not quit, to not give up and uh, you know keep enjoying the sport that we all love. 
Trust me, brother. You couldn't have, you couldn't have said that any better. That's why I, I wanted it to come from you. Um, I know that you and I years ago had a little brief conversation about it. Um, and I know that uh, when Josh Fredericks puts his mark on you, it never goes away. And, uh, you know, I was in the opposite camp. I was with Doug Eichner. And we were going head to head with Josh constantly. And yeah. there was never, for me, there was never any bad blood. I know Doug and Josh had a little bit of uh, ruffles a few times, but for the most part, they, they honestly, I believe, think the world of each other um, as far as competitors go. You know, I, I feel like in the, at least in the ATV community, I'm not, I don't know the motorcycle world enough, whether desert or motocross itself, but. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's really any of us that have bad blood with anyone on, on our line. I, I don't see a reason to, I mean, go back to uh, the start of last year and at, at Vegas, I, I was pushing Jacob Stevens hard at Vegas and he, he had nerves of steel and he never, he never gave up. He never faltered, didn't never made a mistake. And at the end of the race, I went up and I was like, Hey man, racing's racing sorry for bumping but you rode a hell of a race and i i'm super stoked for you and, and getting your finish and i, I feel like we're all kind of like that and i mean even you look at Bo now like who doesn't look up to him and i'm sure when he first came to the atv side it was it was the same for him he he looked up to these guys as not only as like friends and people to learn from but as fierce competitors that in a kind way we all want to beat you know so I don't, I don't think if there is bad blood, it doesn't last long with the ATV guys. No, I think that it, the mutual respect thing comes uh, pretty fast, you know, because I talked to, to a lot of the old school guys, even from the back east, the motocross series, where there was just, uh, you know, knockdown, drag out, fighting for positions. And those guys are all pretty much friends. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we got, we all get into it and we get into it for the sport, but we stay for the family. And I mean, that's why I got back into it is for the family. And I mean, look, my little brother, I call him Braxton. I've, I've known him since he was four. And now he's 16 whooping anything I would have done on the track this year. And I mean, we all love the sport, but the family is why we're there. The people we get to see on race weekends, the people we love to be around, whether it, if, if it's just for the race weekends or not, those are the people we choose. You'd have spent 30 years of my life with that family. And, and trust me, it's, it's hard not to be there. I mean, it really is. It is. Um, I've missed quite a, I've missed a few this year and it's, it sucks. It's not, it's not fun to, um, to not be there and, and support and share that camaraderie with people still. So I skipped ahead a little bit. You know, because I wanted to talk about that, the the iconic number. Mm. When you decided to go to school, what were you studying for? And uh, did you stay close to home when you went to school or did you travel for school? So I ended up not actually even going to school, which is kind of upsetting. Um, I was enrolled to go to uh, UNR's engineering program and I was going to go mechanical engineering. And I was lined up to go, they have a club that does um, nationwide. Basically, you build go-karts and compete them. Um, and so I had gotten in with those people and told them about my racing experience. And between that and going into mechanical engineering, it was it was looking really promising. Um, but right out of high school, I, I went and started working. And I ended up working at an uh, ATV tour company that did tours down to the Colorado River on the Arizona side. And I quickly realized that school wasn't, it wasn't my time for school. Um, so I told my parents that I didn't want to waste their money and I'd rather them put it towards something else that would be more helpful to them at the time. And uh, they supported the decision, but made sure I knew I had to grow up and I had to, had to uh, own up to a few things. And so I, I started working and that led to doing a lot of seasonal work and traveling and seeing a bunch of different and cool stuff. So you've traveled all over the United States 
or have you traveled abroad or anything like that? I've done uh, a fair amount of the West Coast, um, part of the East Coast, nothing too much in the South or, or Midwest. Um, I've been to Europe a couple times, and then I went and spent a weekend in um, Mexico, and then I've driven through Canada on my way to Alaska a couple times as well. So you made it all the way up to Alaska. Wow. Yeah, I've uh, I spent two summers working up there. Um, and then I visited once since, and I'm, and I'm pushing to go back up again this year, but we'll see if I make it. Have you, did you get to do any type of ATV riding or things like that while you were doing any of these travels? No, uh, not really. Um, I did, I did have a 250R when I lived at, uh, not 250R, four-wheeler, sorry, a uh, dirt bike 250R while I lived in Moab for on and off again for two years. And then um, I think it was the second year I was in Alaska, the owner of the lodge that I worked for, he had an XR200, XR250, something like that. And he'd let me go uh, poke around on the trails once in a while. So no, I didn't get a lot of, didn't get a lot of ATV action, off-road action really. Um, learned, learned how to fish, um, learned how to fly fish. And uh, just got into being out in nature in in a much slower way. Yeah, I, I can bet. It great, gained some appreciation for what a beautiful country we have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything, Colorado, Washington, Idaho, Alaska, California. I mean, everything is, is gorgeous. Um, even I did spend about a week with my sister in New York and the city is different. The hustle bustle is, is quite a bit different, but it definitely has its own beauty to it as well. You got to dig deep for that one, brother. You got to dig <laughs> real deep for that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, my family spent um, two weeks in Ireland and then a week in London. Um, I went back to uh, a different part of England a few years ago. Um, and then here in August, I'm spending a few days in Ireland, a few days in England, um, and then trying to hit uh, Amsterdam, maybe Brussels and Paris here in August. So that's pretty cool stuff right there. Yeah. You know, I've only got to go to Europe on a, what you might call a vacation one time. And um, it was totally different as a tourist versus when I'm going there to work. Yeah. It's it's it is similar but drastically different from what we're used to. Well, when I'd go to work, I mean if we're going to Europe to race, I spend time in a dreary dark workshop and it's not bright and lit like it is over here. Yeah. Um, then you go out to a track and some of these tracks that you get to use are not used all the time. So you're doing a little bit of weed working, you know, to make it so that the rider can ride the course and, and you're off in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and you don't have, you don't have the same tools. You don't have the same, it's just not the same. You know, Flows off. you're not in your space with your flow. Well, when you're in America, you have, dude, I can turn around and grab an extra part or I can run down to a hardware store and buy something I need. Yeah. It's not, you can get a lot of the stuff that you need, but it's not the same. Yeah. You can just turn around and grab it. Yep. Yeah, you know? that's true. And, and a lot of people don't realize that, that we are so blessed here because you have such an abundance of everything. Everything all the time. Yep, all the time right there. I mean, you want for nothing. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been in areas in the world where if you don't have it on you, you ain't getting it. And yeah. when you didn't have a bottle of water, you didn't have any water. Yeah. You know, and so I just, I just wish that anybody that wants to talk about the country, go travel. When, when you get back, I mean, don't go to the tourist, don't go to be a tourist, 
go travel the world in areas that aren't tourist attractions and you'll have a whole different perspective of the country you live in. Oh, for sure. Yep. You know, I mean, my wife's from Mexico and, and we get to go to the cities and she knows all the ins and outs. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm totally cheating. I got a tour guide, you know, and when you have a tour guide, how, how is it tough? It's yeah. not. It's amazing. The culture down there. I love it. You know, the mm-hmm. food, is, it's, yeah. but when you have a tour guide, it's cheating. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> but that's awesome that you got to travel. Um, We'll get back on track here. So you've done the work all around the Western parts of the States. And it sounds like you you did some pretty interesting stuff. What brought you back to racing? Uh, Well, at the time I was, I was living with uh, the Gross family and that was Braxton's last year on the two fifties. And so they were nice enough to let me, uh, romp around one of their 450s while we were while Braxton was out practicing and just kind of got back in the flow of it and just so happened to time out that we were down there long enough to be around for the the Glen Helen round that year and I just borrowed Kyle's bike and went and put it on the podium in open a and pro-am so it was a lot of fun and it just once you step back into the world it's hard to step out of it right so right. it's got its hooks back in you huh yeah, and, and it it they hooked deep because it led into a chain reaction of of buying a bike and then building the bike and then my dad picked up a second bike and used it for parts right away and we've just been continuing that cycle of uh, fix and replace and test since. <laughs> so. How old are you now? Twenty five. So you're still relatively young. Yeah. Yep. What are you doing for work? I mean, what is the what is the work that you do? And do you guys still live in Moab? Uh, my parents are in Moab. Yeah, they're they're an hour north of Vegas. They've been there since uh, I was eight. Um, I'm in St. George most of the time now. Um, I do industrial maintenance up here. Um, so basically, I work for a giant laundromat. We do all the lawn, linen for um, hotels and hospitals in the area. And I just make sure the machines keep running throughout the day. So it's so you're a technical. You're technically working on machines to keep them running, not doing the production uh, production work of it. Yep. Um, so so technically, you're kind of a, um, a, a a tech guy or a mechanic for these machines. Yep, that's exactly it. Really. So. Yep, and no, so schooling? Just, Pardon, no schooling for that? Just went in no, to work on it? No, I actually, uh, I kind of got lucky. Um, my ex actually got me the job. She was working there running the machines um, and was friends with the maintenance, chief maintenance guy. And I was looking to get out of where I was, what I was doing and and they needed some help. And so they kind of took a big leap on me and and brought me in. and. Um, because of racing and, and doing as much as I have, I, I have to learn and adapt quickly. And that's what I did. And, and it's worked out so far. Yeah. You're, you're, are you liking that position so far? It's been good. Um, August will be two years. Um, I think it is time for the next step, whatever that is. Um, I'll probably finish out um, probably through October so I can get to all the races and then um, figure out what the next move is not sure exactly what or where but alaska has been been calling my name again and and uh just some different scenery i think has been his time well that's that's going to change your race program a little but i'm sure that uh um you'll figure that out if if racing is what you want to come back and do um you'll you'll be back yeah i mean i Racing will never go away fully. Um, the bikes I have, I won't get rid of. One is a works bike, and the one I'm building now is a is a GNCC bike. So we we had planned on trying to hit four races this year, and just I don't know 
if it's on me or timing or what, but I, I haven't been able to get parts, um, a few different parts for a while. And so it's just slowed everything down. And I've had some life changes and stuff here recently. And I've just kind of stepped back from racing, um, you know, pulled my head out of the sand and, and taking a look around and taking stock on some stuff. Um, but definitely looking forward to, uh, I think we're going to push for Florida again next year. Um, that's a GNCC race. We've always died to try to get to and we were we were pretty bummed when it didn't happen this year um so i think at least florida next year i'll probably hit the the last three races um in works this year just practice and and uh pro practice on saturday i'm there to support the kid and and the other guys out there riding so but i think that's what racing kind of holds for me now and then um Right now, I have this crazy idea of getting my pilot's license and owning a plane. So switch one form of expensive hobby for another. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. That's that's true. You'll need two jobs to take care of that plane. Oh, at a minimum, two jobs. That's that. that you know, there's a lot of guys that race ATVs that fly planes, and I don't see the correlation in it. But you know because i'm just not a small plane guy um you know they're they're different but after being in alaska and being remote in alaska and, and using those small planes it's 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 hard to beat it's it's almost like racing um and i've never actually flown the plane myself or even sat in one of the seats to fly um but it's it's just a whole nother perspective on the world and, and the places you can get is, is pretty crazy and, and a new form of adventure. Well, Joe bird is a pilot and flies. And I didn't know this at the time, but Joe bird and, and uh, Doug Gus were flying to the races back at the end, closing closer to the end of their careers. Really? Yeah. When Joe wasn't, when Joe would have the rig there or somebody would drive it for him. He could fly, and 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 um, Doug Gust rode for Suzuki, so his stuff was already there, and he would just fly in, race, and fly out. Yeah, I, th I think the weird part with me though is um, I also like to jump out of them. <laughs> I want to get skydive certified too, and and <laughs> do some skydiving. No, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've only done that once too, and it's it's one of the coolest experiences uh, too. You think you get a rush from from racing? Just wait till you're jumping out of a plane. <laughs> I don't have wings. Um, I don't have the ability to fly, and jumping out of a perfectly good airplane does not does <laughs> not sound fun to me at all. Um, I knew a young lady that worked for one of the other ATV companies, and um, she was out hanging out with us uh, one year, and uh, down there at Elsinore, and she said, Hey, I want to, I want to, you know, jump. Can you guys drop me off here? And I was like, we were like, sure. And we dropped her off. She jumped and found her way back to where we were at. And, and everybody was like, did, did you like that? And yeah, yeah, I do it all the time. It's great. Like you're nuts. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking off of one time experience, but I would love to do it again and, and actually get certified. Um, yeah, it's just part of the experiences of life and, and getting to taste a little bit of everything. Well, you know, a famous racer in the back in the 70s and 60s, 70s and 80s. I don't remember exactly when he retired. He was a he was a flat track motorcycle racer. And he rode a two stroke 750 on the flat track. Only guy that could master it. Um, there was another guy that, that rode at the same time, but, uh, as he transferred into road racing and this is on any Sunday, you can watch the movie and see it. And he talks about falling off of the thing in Japan, in the rain and sliding up in front of the grandstands and, you know, jumping up and screaming about how awesome it was to, to, to do this. And he said his biggest fear is scuba diving. He's afraid really? to death of it, you know, and, and to me, I've gotten to scuba dive a few times and no, I'm not certified, but I think it's freaking incredible. You know, it, it's weird because I, 
I'm not super stoked on on water myself. I love to fish and and I've gone deep sea fishing a couple times, but you know, sky, uh, scuba diving is one of the things that's on my list to do too, and and actually really explore that. But man, the the water is a scary thing for me too. <laughs> I'm deathly afraid of sharks. So I got to do a dive, a two tank dive in uh, Hawaii, and you know the the instructor is telling me, he says, okay, we're going to dive this wall, but our back is going to be to open water and that's dangerous. So you have to every so many minutes or every so often we need to turn around and check our environment because a shark or a bigger fish can come out of nowhere way faster than you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That darkness in that, in that deep water is it's, it's a lot closer than you think. We were very fortunate. It was this bright, sunny day. The water, the visibility was incredible. Um, I don't know Good. what the distance was, but you could see a long ways off. There were no big fish. The only the only things that we saw were on the wall of this um, resort that we were diving in. There, multicolored little eels and some uh, seahorses, some turtle, little turtles. Even even some big ones, and at the at the corner of this thing, there was a like a a defect in the way they poured the concrete, so it never came together and joined correctly. So there was a giant hole, and I don't know if it was drainage or a mistake or what, but the guy motioned me to to, to swim closer, and then as I'm you know I'm I'm green I don't know nothing. I'm swimming in there and he grabs me and stops me and then shows me the shadow. And if the shadow was half the size, uh, you know, because the shadow is always bigger. Mm-hmm. If the eel was half the size of the shadow, it would have been big enough to take my hand off. Really? And That's a big eel. Yeah. I, I didn't see the eel itself. I only saw the shadow. Wow. And we backed out of there and and we he said we were super lucky that it didn't come out after us for whatever reason. Hmm. But yeah, I I was going head first, no problem, whatever. This guy said it was cool. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that that as far as, you know, and like I said I'm deathly afraid of sharks. But uh, I still would love to experience that, but I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to swim with great whites or. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Um, I worked at a remote bear camp in Alaska and we just viewed bears and uh, towards the end of the season, we get a lot less clients in and stuff, or we get a day or two here and there where we don't have any clients. And so one morning I went out, I woke up and I heard a bear fishing in the the creek behind camp. So I took my camera and I went out and I kind of sat tucked inside the bank a little bit, the bank of this creek. And there was a bear going up and down the creek fishing. And I'm just taking photos of him and no big deal. And I take this photo and this bear's head is, is huge, huge, like in my, in the view of the camera. And I know I'm zoomed in, but I'm like, I don't know, that, that bear seemed really close. And I just kind of lower, lower the camera, poke my head up above the grass a little bit. And this bear's 10 feet away from me. And it, it kind of adds to that, that same sort of feeling of, you don't, I mean, I know how to act in that area because I, that was my second year and I knew what was going on, but I was so into taking the photos that I just kind of spaced of what my actual awareness was around me. And so just like you swimming into a hole with an eel, I'm tucked into a corner and there's a bear walking towards me. So it was interesting experiences that are fun to look back on, but man, definitely got lucky. Have you seen the video of those Alaskan fishermen sitting in their lawn chairs fishing and the bear walks up and sits Mm -hmm. down next to them? Yeah. And just like no big deal, didn't didn't hurt anybody, didn't didn't do anything, you know. Looked around and walked off. 
Yeah. There's um there's actually been a couple of videos posted recently that came from um the camp that I used to work at and it's some pretty good bear fights actually. And and they're no more than 20 yards off and these two boars are going at it. And in a lot of the time when the bears are like that it's because there's food around that they don't have to feel pressure from us. So that's why we're there and able to do that, but it's such a surreal feeling when when you're that close to a bear. Even even when you're in the big groups and you have a bear that's 20 yards off of you guys. I mean, it's it's still surreal because you're always told to be to push them off, be afraid of them. They're dangerous. And then you get into their environment and you let them enjoy their environment. And it's it's very interesting to see. Yeah, but I mean, they are dangerous because they're so strong and so. Oh, no doubt. No doubt, especially. And let me clarify that that's that area that we were in is a very special area where the bears can act that way. And it's not like that everywhere. So don't, don't take my word saying you can go sit 10 feet away from a bear and be fine. That's not what I'm saying, but it's that area is special. I bet it is. You know, I, I had a friend of mine that uh, worked at SeaWorld and they had polar bears. And the polar bear enclosure is this massive aluminum gates and they're the way they're anchored and bolted in and built into the facility. And you're thinking nothing could harm, you know, destroy this. And he said, if the bear knew it could, it could rip that. Oh yeah. Massive aluminum gate, the two gates that would separate you from the bear the first one was your safety defense and then your second one he said he could walk through those like they're not even there and the bear doesn't realize it's that strong yeah yeah they're 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 phenomenal creatures especially polar bears and there there's people that do polar bear viewing but i i think they're they're a little bit on the crazy spectrum there for sure <laughs> yeah, they're out on everything but, is food i don't i don't know how it works with polar bears i don't um, but as far as I know, they're out on basically the, the, the snow flats with the polar bears and just watch them walk around. And I, I don't know how the interaction works to them. I've never done it myself, but it's, it's definitely a little spooky. Cause I mean, a, a small polar bear is 12 foot tall. Yeah. That's, that's a huge animal. Yeah. The female at the, at SeaWorld was 17 feet. Yeah. They're massive. They're in, it's it's so crazy to think of how big they actually are. Yeah, I'm, you know, five foot nothing. <laughs> yeah. Five foot nine, maybe five foot 10 on a good day. And yeah. um, 17 foot. Yeah. No, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, no. I'm good. No. That's I'll, like stay going in, to, I'll stay in the truck and watch them with binos for sure. <laughs> that's like going and messing with freaking moose. Yeah. At least, at least moose, you can kind of dance around the tree until they get bored. But bears don't get bored, and if you catch the wrong moose, you're in, you're in for some trouble too. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go moose hunting anytime soon. That's for sure. No, <laughs> no. no. I, I think for me, I, you know, if I was gonna go hunting, it might be for just rabbits. You know, something small, little bitty. You know, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not a, I'm not a woodsman. No, bunnies, bunnies are pretty safe. I haven't, I haven't heard of too many vicious bunny attacks. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, as much as I want to think I'm a country guy because I was growing up in the rural area, I'm not because I didn't yeah. go hunting. I didn't do none of that stuff. No, I, I think it's fascinating and I'd love to do it someday, but I, I definitely need a guide or, or a good buddy that knows what they're doing before I do it on my own. Right on, brother. Right on. Alex, you know, it did take us a long time to do this, and I am so glad that you carved out some time for me. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I think the world of you and your family, and and I really appreciate you um, having the faith in me to, to have you tell your story on on my platform. Hey, I, I, I'm sorry it took so long, and I, and I appreciate you doing this for the industry. And it's, like I said, it's guys like you that that are, are top notch and always, always trying to promote and be better for themselves and for the industry is, is what keeps us in it. And it keeps us trying to do the same. So thank you. And, and thank your podcast for 
pushing our word. Well, I appreciate you saying those kind things about about what we're doing because it's all for you guys. Uh, you know, I, I, I've got to enjoy an amazing career in the ATV world, and I love the sport and uh, being able to to you know have an outlet so that we can tell the story. It's it's so uh, important to me because for so long, no stories were being told. Nothing was getting out. Nobody was talking about the industry. And, and I think that we're, we're, we're having fans that don't ride ATVs, listen to the shows or, or see some of the video stuff that we produce and they're becoming fans um, that don't ride. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was another big thing that got me back into, into writing and, and writing in general is I, I was sitting in Alaska one day and I came across the, a, a a motorcycle uh, podcast one day and it was about um, it was mostly about supercross but just hearing the hearing the talk again you know it just it gets you back in the mindset gets you back into that groove and and it's it's really cool to see the ATV side really start to come up and and get that recognition in the online world as well I think I think the sport's going to grow the youngsters there are a lot of young young people coming up Um, the development I know that we're basically a one four fifty um, industry right now. I think it's going to change. I really believe it in my heart. I I hope so. I would I would truly love to see sport quads grow again. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of companies that were on the cusp of of the right thing. They just had to dial it in a little bit better. Um, I mean, Can Am, uh, Suzuki, Honda. They were they were all heading in the right direction it just wasn't quite there yet and they needed another year or two and, and it just fell short so it would i would love to see some competition come up for sure yeah i would too and we'll we'll see maybe maybe honda's going to do something maybe another manufacturer is going to do something uh we'll see some we'll still see some things uh, i think in the future i'm not exactly sure where in the future but i th- I, I see it coming yeah, and I uh, I don't have a lot of an online presence anymore, but um, hopefully, as I'm scrolling through, at some point, I'll I'll see something pop up and and hoot and holler for some real, real uh, forward progress in the industry. Uh, well, as long as as long as the non-factory companies, the independents, are out there doing their thing, which we've supported the industry from the very beginning, you know, yeah. I think that. The aftermarkets are going to to always keep it going. Um, Absolutely. You know, and hats off to Yamaha for what they're doing for the sport right now. Yeah, I mean, it love to see that they are pushing and and they they actually do quite a bit. Uh, they don't just have the quad, you know. They actually do stuff and and promote and push more of it than just have the quad for people to buy. So it, it's cool. It's cool to see. And again, hats off to them. Yeah. Exactly. Well, brother, make sure you say hello to the family for me. And and again, thank you for your time. You get yourself well. Um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, keeping me abreast of that, you know, just send me some text messages on how your your development is going. And uh, if you ever need anything, please reach out to us immediately. Will do, Lenny. I appreciate you. All right, brother. You have a great night. Thank you so much. You too, sir. Have a good one. We'll talk to you later. That was awesome, brother. Hey, thank you. Uh, I know we kind of got off track there, but I appreciate you letting me uh, talk. Oh, dude, it was great. That's it. It's you. It's all about you, man. It's all about you. And talking about the stuff in Alaska and and you know the your your traveling. That that that's what I wanted. That I wanted it to be about you. And uh, thank you. You open up a little better than most people. So most people uh, get a little. You know, only want to talk about the ATVs. Well, that's great, but that's not all you. You're not only an ATV racer. Yeah, and you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm a little sad that I'm I'm stepping away from racing again. I mean, the family's there and everything, but you know, you know how life is, and it takes its directions. And I think mine is heading a different way right now. Brother, I- I'm proud of you as a as a man. 
and the things that you're doing. And uh, like I said, if you ever need anything, you pick up the phone. I'm, I'll, I'm there for you, brother. You know that. I do. And I, and I appreciate that fully. I really do. But you take it easy. And, and if you have something that you need, you know, like if you want to post something or if you have information that you want to get out there, racing or not racing, I don't care. Uh, you're still part of the family and you just get it to us and we will take care of it for you. You know, um, when you see your dad, you know, and your mom, give him a big hug for me, please. I will. We'll do Lenny. All right, brother. Thank you so much. I'll be in touch because there's a whole nother episode to this that we'll talk about even more different stuff. So. Perfect. Whenever, uh, whenever I, I enjoyed this conversation. So whenever you get it, whenever you want to again. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International, Inc. offers host, MC, and guest speaking services at events. Builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world. And they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to duncantechinternational at gmail.com or call 619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms, and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 